part of being a good rigorous thinker is to have tools for uh, becoming um, more effective and uh, better at analyzing things that have happened, including your own actions, um, as well as being a better uh, planner for things that you'll do in the future. So there are two simple tools here um, that uh, we like to use um, in our work, but also to uh, teach to our clients. Um, uh, the first one's very basic. It's called a, uh, a post-mortem, a uh, very common technique, but often the common ones are the ones that are good. Um, the other one we're going to do is called a pre-mortem, which uh, more people are starting to understand, but it's it's less well-known than the post-mortem. It serves kind of a different purpose. So um, in the military, the U.S. military, a post-mortem exercise is called a after-action review. Uh, it's basically what happens when the uh, platoon goes out on a mission. Uh, when they come back, they get together, and without judgment, without acrimony, they go through a simple checklist. Okay, what happened? Why did it happen? And how do we do it better in the future? Um, when we are planning our, our programs or we are conducting our programs, we always do a bit of a post-mortem where we um, say, okay, what went well, what didn't go so well, and what can we do better next time? Right? So having a few simple questions after an activity helps us get better and better each time because by doing this process, we learn. Okay? If we just keep doing things without analyzing the results, without going through some sort of process like this, uh, we're likely to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So a post-mortem uh, activity is great to do on a sales call. A lot of sales teams will do this, right? Uh, or, you know, a product development team will go through this after the, the product launch, etc. And it's a great tool. You can even do it for a coaching session or a team building session. Do it yourself afterwards. What went well? What didn't go so well? What can I do better? Um, again, the important thing here is to do them without blame, without hostility, without anger but just do it to learn. Yeah. And sometimes when decisions are more important, when there's more at stake or when you just uh, want to do it uh, in a different way, another tool is the pre-mortem. So it is similar to the post-mortem. And uh, what, what this is about is a... Um, it's the same exercise, but before it happens, before you implement this new um, project or be before you launch the uh, product. So what this is about is you do kind of the same, you ask the same questions as if the project failed, as if the dog died <laughs> and <laughs> we should explain the image here right yes. i mean just, just, just to back up quickly here. so a post-mortem is usually kind of an autopsy right what happens yes. after a person dies you know why did they die you know what can we learn from this etc okay so this is one where you are imagining that the patient died or that the project failed and yeah. so forth and you're trying to figure out the causes yeah so what you do is you kind of face the scenario where, okay, the dog died. Why did it die? The project failed. Why did it fail? And it is different to saying, oh, who think this, this project would fail? 
or um, why could it fail? Uh, when you put it as a possibility, then all your biases kick in and you might start defending the project because it's your idea, for example, and say, no, no it won't fail. And your, your mind will not even be open to thinking about potential uh, threats or reasons why it could fail. So instead of saying why could it fail or what could, could go wrong as a possibility, you say it went wrong. We failed. Why did we fail? What are the reasons why we failed? And so your mind here, it's the goal is to identify reasons why it failed. It is not to defend the idea or anything like that. So it's a way to unbias your thinking and think of real threat that um, could make you fail eventually. Now, this is something that uh, Gary Klein uh, presented and came up with, and a lot of executives um, like it. Now, I've seen a lot of resistance as well, because it's, some people say, oh, but it, you're being too pessimistic. It's, it, you're uh, just thinking that it will fail. So if you think that way, it might fail. Well, the truth is that it's kind of, it's a frame of mind to come up with all the threats possible so that you don't fail. Uh, it's a way to trick your mind uh, and unbias it, as I said before, uh, so that you are able to see all these threats without being attached to the idea or to who came up with the idea. It could be you, could be the boss, and you're not uh, willing to say that it might fail. So it's uh, a way to effectively unbias your thinking and come up with all the risks and then take care of them. So a couple of uh, points. First of all, uh, no animals were harmed in the uh, making of this video, right? This dog is uh, perfectly alive and that is not a real gun. It's just a finger. So um, the um, other thing is it's important to only do this exercise after you have already decided to move forward on a project, right? You don't want to do this as kind of a cost benefit analysis of whether or not we should do the project, because if you use it for that, you'll never do anything, right? Or you will, you know, because you want to do the project, you will neglect looking at uh, all the, the possible uh, things mm -hmm. that could go wrong. Um, your family decides you're going to go on a vacation uh, and you have to figure out what to do with your dog while you're gone. Now, you could put it in a boarding kennel where they take good care of your dog. Uh, but you know that your dog kind of likes to stay home, doesn't really, you know, do well going to the kennels. Um, and you have a good neighbor who likes your dog and who, you know, is willing to take care of it. Um, and you just want to make sure that everything goes right uh, when you go home. So a way to uh, do a pre-mortem here is to envision coming home and finding out that your dog, you know, suffered or didn't make it through the week while you were gone. So... You can sit and make a list of all the reasons that could have led up to this unsuccessful event. For example, uh, I forgot to give the neighbor the keys, right? So they couldn't get in to feed the dog, right? We forgot to buy food, right? So we did, okay, 
leave the keys, check. So we make a list of all the things we have to make sure that we do, okay? Uh, something happened to the neighbor. The neighbor's elderly, okay? She got sick. She couldn't come take care of the dog. So you need to have a backup plan, okay? Have a backup plan in case something works, doesn't happen with the neighbor. Um, maybe you can't get in touch with your neighbor because, um, you know, you're wondering, oh, is everything going okay? But I keep calling the neighbor and... I don't get any response. So you can make sure you have a plan to check in with one of the other neighbors so they can go knock on your neighbor's door to make sure everything's okay. All right. So the idea here is you list all these things that could potentially go wrong and then find a way, kind of a backup plan for each of them. All right. Uh, but again, the key thing is you have to do this after you make a decision rather before you make a decision or else you'll never, um, uh, you'll never end up going forward with any project to do a pre-mortem on. Creativity is the impulse to bring something into existence that did not exist before, okay? Or to put something into, or to bring something into being in a way that's um, different from how it's been before. So it might be kind of a, an innovation on something that already exists, right? But it's this idea of doing something, right? Creating something, making some result occur, through, you know, from our ideas. We have an insight and instead of just, you know, mentally pursuing that insight or reflecting on it, we, well, let's try something. Let me see what happens when I do this. Okay. So people usually think that, um, you know, science, for example, is not a creative pursuit, but it usually, you know, there's a lot of creativity that goes into it because it comes from a question that might come from curiosity, but then there's this effort to experiment, right? To say, okay, well, I wonder what happens if, or I wonder how I can test this. And one of the, the, the best ways to remain or to cultivate creativity is to pull on the threads of anomalies, right? When you see something that doesn't make sense, something that doesn't correspond to some belief you have instead of rejecting it instead of pushing it aside instead of ignoring it you kind of pull on it right you say hmm i wonder what that's all about okay so for me that's a way to really stay fresh on uh, our understanding and development of enneagram theory right when i see something you know for example a seven who's depressed Okay, well, wait a minute. That's not what the literature says about sevens. What's going on here? Okay, not, you know, and I don't take the approach of, okay, well, let me just ignore that and pretend it's not there and push it off as just an anomaly that, you know. Not a seven. Uh, or not a seven, right? Well, it can't be a seven, right? Um, you start to say, okay, well, what is this? Why would a seven struggle with depression? Okay. What could bring that about? Do other sevens struggle with depression, but just don't talk about it or just don't display it, you know, and so forth. So there's all sorts of um, contradictions that we see in the world that we tend to ignore. Um, and if you want to be really creative, you want to go into those anomalies, right? Every great business has been, or not every, but many great businesses have been a response to some anomaly, something that doesn't quite fit, doesn't quite work, and points to some need uh, 
in the market that can be explored. I was just thinking that these probably applies uh, to ourselves. And when we feel these inner conflicts, um, when we're not sure what's going on uh, in a particular situation, we tend to push one thing aside uh, and try to go back to certainties. And yes. when we are curious about it, uh, it creates a new way of behaving sometimes. Yeah. Um, because you find out what it's really about, or you get closer to it at least. Yeah. Well, this is the heart of the awareness to action process, right? Mm -hmm. So we observe something, we see a contradiction or a conflict, and we resolve it. Okay. Yeah. But in doing so, we create a new story. Mm -hmm. Okay. We don't just repeat the same old story, but we, we're constantly rewriting our internal stories based on the conflicts that arise each time we rewrite it. Yeah. Okay. Be a thinkerer. So uh, this combination of the uh, term tinker and thinker, right? Um, and the idea here is, you know, a tinker is, well, you know, we can look at what this girl's doing in the slide here, right? She's kind of tinkering, right? You know, building something, creating something, fooling around with it, putting it together. Um, and as we, you know, so there's an element of experimentation that happens in tinkering. Um, and every so often we step back and observe, right? So it's not just constantly creating, constantly staying busy and doing, but every so often kind of stepping back and saying, hmm, let me, let me observe this for a while. Let me think about this. Let me see where it goes. What are some new applications I could do with this? So it's going back and forth between thinking and doing or experimenting here. Uh, that's at the heart of being a thinker. always try to make the complex simple and the simple complex okay um what do you mean by this okay it's not just an attempt to be clever and you know uh you know pseudo profound uh you know in, in this way but one way we understand one way we figure out whether or not we truly understand something is to try and teach it in a simple way. It's a great line from the movie Philadelphia, which you won't appreciate because you've never seen the movie, Maria Jose, but um, the Denzel Washington... What was that? Maybe one day. Maybe one day, yeah. So the Denzel Washington character who plays uh, Tom Hanks' attorney, you know, one of his famous lines is, explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old, right? And it's a way of getting somebody to boil down something that is needlessly complicated or complex into simple but understandable and digestible terms, okay? At the same time, people have a tendency to oversimplify, to make things simplistic in a way that actually loses clarity, right? So there's this difference between simple and simplistic, okay? Simple is something that distill something down to its essential components, whereas um, uh, um, um, simplistic, boy, I'm struggling with the word there. Being simplistic is something that actually hides the depth 
and essential characteristics of something. So when we find ourselves being simplistic, jumping to a stereotype, for example, that's when we want to dive into the nuance and subtleties and sophistication of something. Okay. But when we're getting overwhelmed and confused by something, when we're clearly making something more complex than it needs to be, that's when we want to seek simplicity. So in our theory, in our working with ourselves and with others, we always have to be watching for, am I making something that's fairly simple too complex or am I, um, or am I going too far and make something that's really kind of complicated and rich too simplistic? Yeah. And, and the temptation is huge. And, I, I've seen people who do both things, and uh, it's, it's probably easier to overcomplicate things that are simple. <laughs> uh, just put big words. There's almost like a logic to overcomplicating things, to pretending yeah. that it's more than it is. Or, but but then other people want three easy steps to figure out everything yeah. and they want the rule and they want, okay, so what are the three steps to yeah. apply yeah. this? Well, yeah. it's not just three steps. You need to understand quite a few things before you can apply it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, you can take almost any topic diet, for example. Right. I mean, people, you know, okay. Give me a pill that helps me lose weight, right? Because I, you know, it's more complicated than that, right? And there are other people who will go the opposite direction and get so extreme in, you know, uh, the complexity of their efforts to lose weight that they make it more complicated and difficult than it needs to be. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, this is kind of central to our approach to the Enneagram, right? Is to try and strip out things that add non-beneficial complexity, right? But then acknowledge, you know, very often that things are more complicated than they might seem. Define the big strategic questions and spend time trying to answer them. Okay? Um, often with my clients, I will have them identify three to five big strategic questions that they need to be thinking about and then write them on a whiteboard in their office or some piece of paper or something and then spend a half hour a week at least with nothing else on their agenda but just to sit and think about those big strategic questions. Okay, um, We often don't take the time to think about big questions and try and come up with solutions to them. So forcing ourselves to write down those big strategic questions and spend time answering them helps. Always ask, how could this be better? All right. Uh, again, we tend to get complacent. Uh, almost everything in life could be improved. Now there are some things that work just fine and, you know, we don't need spend a huge amount of time for the incremental benefit that we might find, right? Um, I think, you know, fork spoons and knives work really well, okay? We don't need to come up with new, uh, you know, uh, 
dramatic uh, improvements in eating utensils, for example. The concept of a plate works really well. So some things, you know, we're nice. Now we might on occasion want to come up with new styles of these things, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing. But other things in life can be improved. Any business process you have, right? This is an important one for, you know, clients that we work with. Could this be improved, right? Especially since things are changing all the time. Have market forces changed in a way that uh, mean that one of your business processes could be improved, right? The way you market things could be improved. Uh, any program you develop, such as this one, we always want to ask ourselves, how could this be improved? And we might be too attached to our own ideas or ways of doing things. So yeah. we need to, again, be intentional about these questions. Yes, absolutely. And finally, get out and create something new, right? Go make a baby, right? Go write a song, go write a book, you know, go write an article, you know, come up with a new program, paint something, you know, whatever it is. Get into the habit of output, right? Making sure that something is tangible out of your thoughts and efforts. Doesn't have to be something big, doesn't have to be something dramatic, but getting into the habit of creating in some way, whether it's writing songs, writing articles, writing books, you know, those are good ways, making TikTok videos, you know, whatever it is. Um, what to it see is, you doing that? <laughs> uh, it, it's just a matter of time, right? I just, yeah, all right. Okay, so cultivating creativity is, um, you know, we, we talk about a process of discipline solution seeking, right? So look for something that frustrates you, right? What is a pain point, okay? What is an irritant? What is something that keeps coming up over and over and over again in your life, okay? Um, muse on the possible solutions, right? Think about it, reflect, okay? Um, you know, write down a list of possible solutions, do some thought experiments, do some real experiments if you need to. And then understand that most of our insights come during that eureka moment. Sorry about that. Um, most of our insights actually come in that sort of eureka moment. Um, is the famous story I'm Oh, boy, I'm off my game today. The, uh, the 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 Greek philosopher who figured out the for you know the uh, the solution to uh, the calculating volume when he stepped into the um, bathtub, okay, and the water flows up, right, and that's where the famous term eureka comes from of a discovery. I have found it. Okay, I want to say Archimedes, but I'm not sure. Um, so. The idea here was that he had been working on this problem and then decided, you know what, I'm going to stop thinking about it for a while. And he let his non-conscious work on the problem. So we have to understand that very often the problem after a lot of hard work comes in a flash of insight while our subconscious or non-conscious works on it. Yeah, so, so it is Archimedes, but... Um... It has been very useful to me to understand how the brain works in that regard, because it's kind of, I give the brain the talent, think about it, take up, I mean, take in 
kind of different all the data or the <coughs> relevant data and think about solutions and then I let it sleep and it's not like I'm forgetting about it or maybe I am consciously but the brain is still working on it and then all of a sudden taking a bath or whatever um, a solution comes up yeah. or it's almost sometimes like a download yeah if you force it too much it will not be the best solution probably you yeah. need to give it some time to digest yeah yeah look uh, i mean we've all had insights in the shower for example right you know where you're thinking about something then you get in the shower and then all of a sudden ah okay now i get it or or another good example of this is remembering something you know uh you try to think about it and you try to think about it and you drive yourself crazy because you can't remember you know, Archimedes, for example. And then five minutes later, when you've stopped thinking about it, the word Archimedes pops into your head. Okay. So uh, learning to cultivate that sort of walk in the garden, right? Or hiking or, you know, whatever it is that we do to take our mind off of something will enhance our creativity. And finally, creativity is, um, it comes from a different disciplined effort. Um, there was a Richard uh, Rhodes, an author um, uh, who wrote a book on writing, and he said, uh, writing is real. There's a real simple formula to it. Uh, put your ass in a chair and type, right? Um, you know, he was saying that you just, every day you have to put your butt in a chair and, and type. Uh, Hemingway was another great example, right? He wrote every day. He was disciplined. He went to his uh, office at the same time every day, wrote for the same number of hours, and then went and got drunk. But, um, you know, the idea... disciplined about that as well. What's that? He was disciplined about that, too. Yeah, raised it to a true art form. Um, and he always stopped writing when he knew what the next sentence was, okay, so that he could start over again fresh the next day. But he was disciplined about it all great artists all great creators don't just wait for the muse to strike they are disciplined about it we're going to continue on now with leadership thinking uh, we talked about rigor now we're going to talk about curiosity and creativity we talked about how um when we think about leadership thinking we think of it in terms of an open-ended triangle with rigor at the top curiosity and creativity along the bottom representing points seven and four on the Enneagram. Um, again, this is not a process like it is with the awareness action process, but a set of dynamics. Okay. And the idea here is that curiosity and creativity both need to be present and they need to be in a dynamic tension with each other because too much of one and not enough of the other has problematic results, okay? Uh, curiosity is the desire, the open-ended and non-transactional desire to know, to explore, to discover, to find out things that may not be relevant, but are relevant, but are just interesting, okay? Or might be interesting, but we don't know until we explore them, okay? Uh, creativity, on the other hand, while it's usually associated with artistic creativity, is really the act of bringing something into being. It might be artistic or not. It might be 
our offspring. It might be a, uh, uh, you know, a product or a, something that we create from business. Um, innovation and, and uh, artistic creativity are part of this, but it's the simple act of bringing something into being that we're talking about here. I was thinking that in kind of simple words, curiosity is like taking in and creativity. It's like, um, not throwing out, but um, yeah. it's but, kind of yeah, producing. producing, but it's kind of the opposite. It's one, it's you take in, it's like inwards. And then uh, the other one is outwards. Yeah. And the idea here is that they work together and sometimes creativity can drive curiosity, right? We create something, it has an impact on the world and it creates a result or an effect that we weren't aware of. And we say, oh, let me look into that. Okay, that was interesting. I didn't expect that. Let me explore this. And um, the, the our curiosity um, fuels creativity, right? I mean, if we are creative without being curious, we ending up putting things out into the world that are not very interesting or not very useful or, um, um, you know, have already been done before. And we just don't know it because we're not curious enough to find out. Okay, so these two things, in order to really be effective, have to work hand in hand. They have to be both uh, uh, happening. And again, depending on our individual biases and our personality style, we might have more of a preference for one of them, right? Uh, for example, I think navigators tend to, in general, uh, have more curiosity than creativity very often, okay? So they want to explore things, but nothing might come out of it. Okay. Um, and with the preservers or transmitters, they might be more interested in actually putting something out into the world. Uh, but without that creativity, it won't be as, I'm sorry, without that curiosity, it won't be as interesting as it could have been. Um, also, I think, you know, again, this is another area where we want to acknowledge the uh, link to the Enneagram points but make sure that we're not just assuming mm -hmm. that, oh, sevens are naturally curious. Some of them are, some of them aren't, okay? Uh, some sevens are perfectly fine being excited about the same old things over and over and over again, right? And may not want to venture outside of their comfort zones. And not all fours are creative necessarily, particularly not all fours are artistically creative, uh, although that tends to be a stereotype that doesn't quite hold up, so... Mm -hmm. Um, so it's associated with the Enneagram numbers, but not necessarily associated with the Enneagram types. Okay, so curiosity is the hunger to know what is out there. And uh, what we're going to present here are a couple of, uh, I guess, tips or pointers or suggestions on remaining curious and, uh, and expanding our curiosity or feeding our curiosity. And as you just said, not all sevens are curious, but when I think about curious people, a lot of sevens come to mind. Sure. And, um, to me, I, I was really surprised when I started realizing that, uh, in that it's like, like almost like a very 
childish in the sense of like naive or like uh, really kind of pure interest in how things work in what's out there and it's refreshing to me yeah. at least yeah i would just use the word childlike rather than childish right yeah, childish is generally pejorative yes. yeah. um you know and again the dalai lama is a great example of that right mm -hmm. i mean when you read about the dalai lama um he talked about when he was a kid liking to take apart radios right just to see how they worked okay and you know and then try to put them back together again and you know he's always been a very curious person who always asked people about themselves uh you know not just to be nice but genuinely being interested in people is is i would agree as a mark of particularly a healthy seven okay so um, rules for staying curious. Uh, number one is to remember our ignorance, right? Um, Socrates famously said, the only thing I don't know is that I don't know anything. Uh, there are some great quotes out there. Can uh, I know? Uh, I'm sorry, what did I say? The only thing I don't know. Oh, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. Yeah, sorry if I misspoke there. Um, and, uh, uh, you, you know, there's a great quote, I wish I could remember who said it, but uh, pointing out that what we know about the universe is just an infinitesimal slice. Okay, I mean, there's so much information out there, so many interesting things to explore in so many realms that nobody can know all of them and nobody can be, you know, uh, we all have room to improve upon our ignorance. Yeah, and I think culturally we're not rewarded for stating our ignorance or asking right. a lot of questions. So it's not natural, I think, for us to remember this. Yeah, it's, We need to make an effort to remember it. So uh, let's. This is real small on my screen. What does that say? Yeah, really? fox hog. Uh, a fox hog. Yeah, fine. There I went on large it so I can see better. Okay. So be a fox hog. So uh, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin um, wrote an essay about the fox and the and the hedgehog. Right. And the hedgehog is a little rodent that uh, when it's pursued by a predator, it just rolls up in a ball. Right. That's all it knows to do. It doesn't run. It doesn't go hide. It's not creative. Just sees a fox coming or whatever other predator and just rolls up in a ball. Whereas the fox is more clever. It knows more things. It can have different escape routes and different strategies for evading or pursue, you know, evading or pursuing. So he made the, uh, you know, the, the comparison that some people are foxes, meaning they know a bit about a lot of things. And other people are hedgehogs, right? That they know a lot about one thing. And we all know people like this. We know people who, you know, know an incredible amount about one thing, but don't know much about anything else because they're not that curious about it. And we know people who know um, a lot. Uh, I'm sorry, a little bit about a lot of things. So the idea here of being a fox hog, okay, not really a pleasant term as I think about it, and uh, you know, e e easy thing to say, is that we should understand that we benefit from knowing, you know, a little about a lot and a lot about a, some things, at least more than a couple of things, right? So to have both depth and breadth, although we're strategic about it, okay? We identify those things that we want to know a lot about, and we know a lot about them, but then we try to know a little bit 
about a lot of things. Here we say keep adding to the endless mosaic. What I, what I mean by this is that um, I, I, I again wish I could remember what book it was so I could give credit, but um, uh, the, the guy was a leadership development theorist and uh, talked about creating a mosaic, right, of understanding that the world of our mind is like this big piece of art that we just keep adding to, right? We keep adding little colored tiles to. Uh, a mosaic is a, uh, you know, a piece of art that's made up of small colored tiles. And when you step back from it, it has this sort of impressionistic feel that, you know, it, it becomes more clear as we see it. And so to see our lives as a mosaic in this way, that's never finished, right? And that we keep wanting to be adding little pieces of color to it, uh, to enrich it, to make it fuller, um, is a really good strategy. I, I'm always telling my sons that, you know, um, they should know a little bit about Shakespeare. Okay. They should know a little bit about classical music and these sort of things. They should know about history of places that they'll probably never go and, you know, may not otherwise have an interest in because the more little bits of knowledge and insight we have, the richer our world is, the more complete our mosaic starts to get. Um, it's almost like it's ex ex uh, exponentially more interesting. Okay. Uh, somebody makes a movie reference, right? And, you know, if you don't know the movie, you don't get the implication. You don't get everything that they're saying. Somebody uses a word that you don't know or don't understand or references a piece of music. And if you don't have knowledge of it, you miss out on the richness of it. Um, so continually try to add little pieces of information and knowledge, make life just richer, more colorful, more interesting. When my um, daughter and I were in New York last week, the week before that, uh, we went on a cruise around Manhattan. And I don't know if it was that or something else, but the tour guides were all the time referring to, oh, this movie was shot here and that mo movie was shot there. And this actor lived here and these people, this person looked, lived there and, and all about movies. Same thing with um, when we went to Philadelphia for the day and met with you. And uh, I told Trini to watch Rocky before going there. Yeah. Same thing you did with me when I went there, but um, it's a way to see more things. So you can see the same city, but you will see, as you're saying, richer colors if you know more about it. Yeah. And so let's stick with that example for just a second here, right? Not to belabor this point, but, you know, take the movie Rocky, made in 1976 about Philadelphia. And um, it's a movie that, you know, gives you a very uh, specific glimpse of time and place. Okay. Um, and of course, the famous scene is Rocky running up the art museum steps. Okay. Which you did when we went there. Uh, Trini and I watched you run up and as we walked slowly behind. But um, to, you know, you see somebody running up the steps. Okay. And Yes, why are they running up the steps, right? But if you understand Rocky, if you've seen it, if you understand how iconic 
that is, it gives you a completely different appreciation and understanding of it. And then if you go to the top of the steps and you see the view compared to what it was in 1976, a very different view of the city, you start to get a sense of how much the city has grown and developed in that, you know, 45 years or whatever it is since that time. So information provides context context provides richness and nuance and subtlety and depth to everything that we do. Um, this takes us back to your word, uh, childlike, right? This uh, ask why relentlessly, right? Anybody who is a parent understands how irritating and frustrating it can be to hear the question why over and over and over again in a young child, but that's how children uh, learn, right? It's how, again, it's how they pr uh, develop context. It's how they develop an understanding of um, their environment and how the world works is by asking why. Uh, we tend to take things for granted. People say things and we don't understand why. We see things happening. We do things. We follow processes and procedures without asking why. So asking why relentlessly might make you a little bit irritating, but it can make your life richer as well. And many times we think we know. Yes. Uh, so we don't only think or take for granted that we know but we think we know but we know or understand the wrong thing or not necessarily what the other person is talking about yes yeah so we, we've been kind of making this point a number of times here so we don't have to go into it okay um and uh, knowledge is power okay very simple right a real eight-ish comment i know but as you recall, power is the capacity to produce a result. If you want to achieve things in life, you have to know things, especially today, right? I mean, uh, Peter Drucker years ago started talking about knowledge workers versus labor workers. And, um, you know, we're all almost uh, no, uh, a much higher percentage of us are knowledge workers than we used to be. And if you're watching this video, it's a pretty good chance you're a knowledge worker. And if you want to achieve things professionally, personally, you know, spiritually, call it what you will, knowledge and insight will help you do that. And we get that by um, curiosity. Okay. So, um, there's a, an exercise I'll give clients when we're working on creating uh, or improving our curiosity, right? A daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly question that we have them ask. Uh, the daily question is, what did I learn today? You know, when my kids uh, come home from school, I used to ask them, you know, well, how was school? Assuming that they would tell me something about what they learned at school or what they did. And you quickly learn that you can't do that. You have to ask, okay, tell me something you learned today, which is a really irritating question for them, but it forces them to think and to reflect on what they did. So, uh, and I always tell them, if you can't tell me something you learned, you better go get a dictionary or Google something and give me some mm -hmm. fact to let me know that you didn't get through this day without learning something new. Yeah. Um, Weekly questions, uh, what was I wrong about this week? What mistakes did I make? 
what assumption or conclusion did I jump to uh, that I was wrong about? Uh, another one is what is the and most. Again, and again, this doesn't come natural to us. No, no, so especially need, publicly. Yeah. yeah, we need to force it. Yeah. We are very proud of what we know uh, or when we're right. I am, but I think people prefer that compared to what they're wrong about. So thinking about it is not a pleasant thing, but when you start appreciating the value of it, um, it's almost fun. Yeah. The monthly question, question is, what topic do I not know enough about? Okay. Um, to think and then say, okay, well, maybe I should learn something more about this, right? That's the whole idea. I'm going to read a book on it, or I'm going to watch some YouTube videos on it or whatever it is, uh, so that we can increase our, our understanding. And then a quarterly question, what did I used to believe that I don't believe anymore? This is a tough one. Um, so how would you answer that? What did I used to believe that I don't believe anymore? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I could, I could make a lot of, uh, you know, sort of Enneagram-based um, versions of that, right? So I could say, for example, that I used to believe that humans had instincts in a much more rigid, rigid way, right, uh, years ago. In fact, I wrote uh, an article advocating for... Um, um, a perception, you know, an understanding of the three instinctual biases as, you know, specific instincts and emphasizing that we needed to, um, um, you know, emphasize those more. Uh, so that's one thing. And, um, yeah. How about you? I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. um... See, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to come up with this because, you know, I could think of things, you know, beliefs about God, uh, beliefs about the universe that I used to have, beliefs about the afterlife that I used to have. That yes, I yeah, I'm trying to okay. stay away from those. But those exactly, right. They're kind of the ones that jump to people's minds, yeah. um, you know, most vividly. So. Yeah, I think there are things about parenting that where I have changed. Ah, good one. Um, yeah. About what kids need and what makes a good parent. And, um, and until when you need to kind of be a parent in a particular way, now that I have a teenager, um, what do you allow them to do or not? And so I think there's a lot there where I have changed my mind yeah. dramatically. So this is a good list of questions to go through on occasion, uh, just to stay sharp and um, work on our curiosity. And, and, you know, I was, this morning, I was designing uh, a workshop with a client, a team, and instead of the typical things like, what do I commit to and things like that, all my questions now, or not all, but two or three are about this, like, um, what did I learn? What did I change my mind about? What do I still need to learn? Or do, don't I know not uh, that I know enough about? Uh, because it sets a mindset of kind of learning and growing and curiosity rather than I'm already there. Yeah. 
I used to believe that COVID would end quickly and people would go back to work like they did before, right? So there you go. Okay.